Well, hey, all you cool cats and kittens out there, Brent here. Welcome to Eastlake Online. We're so glad that you're tuning in this morning from wherever you are. Uh, if you're tuning in for the very first time, we are trying to be a church, uh, trying the best we can to be a church. People don't typically uh, like church, and uh, who, but maybe they might give it a shot online because what other options do you have, right? I mean, this is unique times that we're in. It's like we're all 16 again. Uh, gas is cheap, but we're all grounded. So we are super pumped that you would tune in on a Sunday morning and take time out of a busy, I'm sure, weekend uh, and be with us. We're filming this live. It's 10 o'clock and we're here at the Uptown Theater. There's just a, a couple of, of people here uh, doing our best at social distancing, like 40 feet or so. I don't know. Anyways, uh, we're trying, uh, and we do this for a reason. Like we could film this. Uh, and, and last week it, we proved that it would probably make more sense to film it early on. Um, but we're trying to recreate what you would be used to seeing on a Sunday morning with all of the errors and all of the flaws and all of the note. Like, I, I don't get a chance when I speak live to like cancel that, pause that. Imagine you didn't hear that. Let's rewind that five seconds and take that again. Uh, all of the flaws that come with it, we want to do it in that way. Um, we're a church uh, that gathers together on a weekly basis on Sunday mornings, typically at 9, 30, and 11 at the Uptown Theater um, to be with one another, to share coffee with one another, to learn what it means to walk in the way of Jesus in the way of two, in 2020 uh, and beyond, and really to do life in community uh, with one another in that way. We teach in series typically, and last week we kicked off a brand new series <clears throat> um, called A Religion of Nobodies. And thanks to the seven of you who stuck it out online because we had some audio issues and we apologize uh, for that. <clears throat> for the rest of you who hopefully caught it uh, online later when we added a, a, another version with a mildly better audio version uh, on our talks page. Uh, if you got a chance or missed that and you want to go re-listen to that, that's great. Uh, our apologies for that. There's like a weird computer virus joke in there, but I'm going to leave it uh, as it is. So um, <clears throat> today we continue with part two uh, of a religion uh, of nobodies. And a concept behind uh, the series has simply been this, that Christianity has, uh, since its inception, uh, been a religious system that has been uh, founded by, populated by, celebrated by, typically just a bunch of, uh, of nobodies. It did not start off like many religions do from a top-down sort of the culturally elite handing it down to the inept. Uh, it did not start from people with power uh, as a means of controlling those without power. Here, follow these rules and attaching religiosity to it or the opiate of the people or whatever. Um, Christianity started off completely different. It didn't go from the highly educated to the proletariat. It was a grassroots project from the very beginning. Now, that doesn't mean that it didn't stay there. Obviously, with Roman imperialism and Constantine and 400 AD and all the kind of stuff and the rise of the Catholic Church, it does eventually get mixed up with power. Power, but from the very beginning, that's just not the way uh, that it was. It didn't start out that way. It tr truly started out as a religion uh, of nobodies, the way of Jesus. And that's what the title, that's what their first, they didn't have Christianity at first. It was just the way of Jesus. That was their, their, their slogan or whatever. Are you on the way? Are you a part of the way, right? The way of Jesus was populated by non-impressive nobodies. And we see it first and foremost in even Paul's writing, one of our most famous Christian authors, the guy who wrote half of the New Testament, in kind of describing himself in a letter to the Corinthian church, at one point writes, you know, writes about himself saying his letters are waiting forceful, but in person he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Like he's, he's putting, he's writing bad things about himself. He's saying, I'm, I'm really am nobody. It's a modern equivalent of saying, yeah, he drives a nice truck, but you know what they say about guys with big trucks, right? So that's, that's essentially what Paul is saying in this moment. He's addressing the fact that 
I know I come across as a nobody to a lot of people. And, and there's a lot of meat in the writings. Or really, I'm really tough here, but in person, I'm not all that impressive. <clears throat> and that's just absolutely true for Christianity as a whole. Even the language. And last week, this is week one of this thing, um, when we said the language in which a lot of the New Testament specifically was written in was written in what's called koine or common Greek, a, a form of Greek language, a slang version of Greek language that for a lot of times, uh, for, for a long time, people didn't even think actually existed. Um, it, was kind of, it, it was only discovered later as like this was the lingua franca, this was the, the, the language of the people, not in their writings. When they would write, they would write out things differently, but in their common speech, it would be a certain way of talking that they thought was too barbaric to be written down. And that's what a lot of the New Testament documents were written in. So it really has been, and and I think there's a a piece to be celebrated in the fact that it is a religion of nobodies. And now what I'm not talking about is like this trendy idea um, about like nobodies, like celebrating the nobodiness, um, or how like a lot of times in in cultural fads, it's like nobody was into it, and then everybody was into it, so now I'm not into it because it's not cool anymore. Um, I know you could kind of argue that with Christianity, but that's not what I'm trying to say uh, with with this. What I'm trying to say is uh, I think this speaks to the authenticity of what we have here. And we're leading up to Easter. Today's Palm Sunday. Next week is Easter Sunday. Anytime I get a chance to talk about Easter Sunday, I talk about the authenticity of the event that we celebrate in that time, because um, we all know the story. We know that the story doesn't change year after year. He's still risen after three days. But uh, every time I get a chance to talk about it, my, my Easter message is almost always the same. Like, this feels authentic because you wouldn't write it this way. If you were coming up with a religion, in order for it to survive through the centuries, you would want it written like all of the other classical literary documents of the day. You would write it like Homer wrote the Odyssey or like the Iliad or whatever. You would use formal language. You wouldn't use nobodies. Um, nobodies wouldn't qualify. You would have it be come. You would have it come from a position of power. You couldn't trust the uneducated, the unelite with this kind of product. Um, it, it's it's it doesn't it doesn't make sense. If you were making something up you wouldn't do it this way. Uh, and so then when I look at it and I think, man, this has been, like when I read about Paul, when I read about some of the disciples that Jesus chose, the men who were on the mission, when I read about like Peter, like prior to the Jesus' death and resurrection, because I think afterwards he becomes kind of a different, more powerful person. But from at the very beginning, he's like, he's kind of an idiot, right? I mean, they, they all kind of are. And so there's like an authentic pull to that. Why would you have that in there if it wasn't true? So my goal in this entire series, which is only three weeks leading up to Easter, next week we conclude it with this, but um, is to appreciate something new about the Easter story. And we'll get there uh, next week. So thanks for being a part of uh, Religion of Nobody's. I hope it's uh, insightful and I hope it communicates well, even over internet and not in person or whatever. But <clears throat> uh, today I want to start with this. Uh, every parent's reaction to finding out that school is not going to start until at least after May 4th. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, that is Commodus. Uh, it, it's uh, Joaquin Phoenix who plays the role of Commodus in Gladiator, uh, the classic movie. Commodus was a, uh, um, uh, a uh, emperor of Rome. He followed his father, Marcus Aurelius. And in the movie, um, the story goes that he actually killed his father, Marcus Aurelius, as kind of a way of kind of setting the tone for how much of a bad A he was. Uh, but the reality is uh, that Ridley Scott lied to you, uh, that in, in, in real life, in true history, we know that Marcus Aurelius, who was, by the way, one of the best emperors, wrote like meditations, um, and typically in, in, in Roman emperor fashion, um, a really good emperor is always followed by 
by a really bad one. Um, almost, almost progressively, there's five good emperors uh, in, in, in like the Roman history, and, uh, and he's the fifth one. He's kind of the last one, and then it kind of goes downhill from this part. This is the, the beginning of the fall of the Roman Empire is Commodus and his leadership and the death of Marcus Aurelius. Um, and Aurelius fell in 180 AD. He was a victim to a sweeping epidemic that wiped out somewhere between a quarter and a third of the faltering Roman Empire. It started in 165 AD, which basically means this, that their epidemic at that point, which was probably smallpox, they didn't really have a name for it at that point, but um, epidemiologists think that it's probably smallpox that went through, ravaged them for 15 years, which makes us kind of rethink our like three or four months of quarantine that we've been in. Imagine for 15 years and the quarter to a third of the population of the Roman Empire uh, is done for in that moment. And then just a few years later, 251 AD, less than 100 years later, a new an equally devastating epidemic against the empire um, swept through again, this time hitting rural areas just as much as it hit cities. Previously, it was kind of relegated to cities, which you kind of see in even our epidemic that we're going through. But um, this next one ravaged through all of it. They think it was probably measles, modern day measles or whatever. And at its height, 5,000 people a day were reported to have died in the city of Rome alone. Can you imagine those press conferences, like even Fauci would be booed with those numbers coming out, right? Both were devastating, likely because the people involved in it had not had any sort of exposure to these types of diseases before. This was something brand new, and their bodies had not developed an immunity, and this would kind of go on to play. They would develop these immunities, and then when they would cross the ocean and take over the Americas, um, the, they would wipe out the Indians because they were so immune to these stuff, and they would carry these diseases over. Anyways, it's a weird day of history, but this is kind of a, one of the very first exposures to this sort of viral integration of e- epidemics kind of taking over uh, a world and how it became a part of it. And there's an interesting quote that came up from a guy named Hans Zinser uh, who wrote this, again and again, the forward march of Roman power and world organization was interrupted by the only force against which political genius and military valor were utterly helpless, epidemic disease. In spite of all of the successes that the Roman Empire had in, in doing Pax Romana around the world, coming in with military might and having the economic uh, viability to kind of provide the structures to kind of uphold the empire, probably for the very first time in a very systemic way. Uh, and when it came, as though carried by storm clouds, all other things gave way and men crouched in terror, abandoning all their quarrels, all of a sudden, there's not as much fighting. We kind of even see this and kind of hopefully uh, as we kind of move through the political spectrum, I know we have an election coming up this fall, but it's funny how when we have a common enemy, some of those walls begin to bear, uh, tear down a little bit. Undertakings and ambitions until the tempest had blown over. <clears throat> then, as now, crises produced by natural and social disasters are translated into sort of a crisis of faith. Um, as you can imagine, when these things are going on, there's a lot of uh, transition. There's a lot of uh, mindset changes happening in the Roman Empire at this time. And, and many people begin to lose their faith in the Roman power structures and the Greek God system. And Christianity begin to kind of take a little bit of a foothold because people begin to ask this question as people are asking, you know, then as now, like, why is all of this happening? What kind of a God or God thing could allow this to occur? Why isn't, and then, and then also, uh, we've done everything that we can. We've made sacrifices. We've done this. We've bought this. We've prayed this. We've logged into church online. Why isn't this slowing down or why isn't this stopping? And this is often, this type of crises 
and this type of uh, widespread manic whatever um, is oftentimes fertile ground for a new sort of faith to kind of begin to take place. And you know this is true because if, if something has ever worked for you, and I say worked in quotation marks because you've been in a t- tough spot and you've prayed or you've done something, and all of a sudden things kind of begin to take a turn for the better and you thought whatever it is worked. And in, that, in those moments you said, God, if you're there, fix this and I'll forever go to church or I'll be religious or whatever. And then it did and you've seen these... You you know, I've seen or heard stories of people go through this, like a, a real crisis and their health turns and all of a sudden they're like, now I'm religious, right? Because it worked for them in this way. Imagine a world with an unawareness of germ theory. They had no idea why all of these people, and for 15 years, um, people are getting sick, they're not getting better. And it seemingly is, if you're around them, you too get sick. And if you do get sick, there's really no hope for you. And there's ostracization in terms of nobody wants to be around you because we're not even sure how this thing works. They hadn't really gathered the fact that if I touch you or, you know, germs are invisible for us and, and them at the same time. And so um, how do we even know? I and mean, we, we trust our scientists that this is true. And, and I think that it is true. But imagine for them not having that voice that says, well, here's the problem. It you know, comes across in your droplets and, and you don't, shouldn't sneeze and cough and cover your face and all this kind of stuff. All they're saying is, we don't know. People are just dying like crazy. Reimagine our world um, back then with the information that we know now. Imagine not having that and having some of these things transpire and the feelings of helplessness and, and lost or whatever. <clears throat> Last week, I mentioned the idea of um, anti-fragility. I said it's something that I've been processing through as, as a leader of this organization and then as just a personal kind of on a level, how do you get stronger in the midst of chaos? Whereas most times a lot of things in life are fragile and chaos kind of disrupts things and makes things worse. Um, every once in a while there's a few things in life that chaos actually strengthens it and gets it better. And it's very clear that in the midst of at least this crisis with the Roman Empire in the way that it was, the church, the early church, saw this as a potential area to be anti-fragile for this chaos to actually strengthen it. Uh, you see from the, at the very beginning, the numbers of people associated with the Christian faith are extremely low. They are in the drastic minority uh, at the time, of the, the, the time when these epidemics start. And at the end of these a- epidemics, their numbers are uh, a lot better, a lot um, and I don't mean to be crass or like whatever, but I'm saying like the percentage of people who identify as Christian after this are, are way higher. For them, it was a, they were anti-fragile in this moment. They grew as a result of this. And there's a lot of factors in this. And, and, there, and there, no question if, uh, if, you, if you read any sort of uh, documentation on why the Roman Empire fell, one of the things that's gonna come up is epidemics and disease. There's, there's a lot of reasons. Maybe they got too big. Maybe there were too many bad emperors in a row. Maybe the structure was just not like you had too many guys going off to war. And then when they would come home, there's no place to kind of reward them or let them build these homes. And so you try and resettle them and that just didn't work out. Um, there's all kinds of discussions as to why Roman empire, the greatest empire at that time didn't make it. Uh, but for sure, a part of that conversation are these epidemics and these diseases because everything would shut down in these moments. And what happens in these times too is this. A thing you need to know about Roman real estate or, or whatever, because I don't know how much how brushed up you are on your Roman real estate, but um, a lot of the uh, wealthy and the culturally elite uh, would have a home in Rome, in the city of Rome, because that was where government was. That was where the, you know, the, the, all of the laws took place, and that was where you needed to be seen. But they would also, like many wealthy people, have a beach house 
um, they would go towards the coast. They would have a home kind of more isolated than this. And in fact, when you look at kind of the studies of it, they held those homes in the city primarily to host banquets and to make an appearance there and show up every once in a while. But they spent a majority, a lot of their time away. Uh, they didn't like the city. The city was poorly built. It, it grew too fast. Um, they, everything was really, really tight. Um, in fact, uh, Nero, this isn't in my notes, but I remember reading about the emperor Nero one time visited Alexandria, the city in Egypt, and saw how well planned out and structured their city was. And so when the fire takes place in Rome, if it, whether it was started by him or not, one of the reasons that people think that maybe he started the fire is he was jealous of how their city was structured and why not start all over with this new fire. And anyways, so poorly structured, they would, they would have these two different homes and uh, they would spend a lot of time at the lake house. All these, all these wealthy people, especially this shows up uh, when epidemics like this take place. When it's dangerous to live in the city, the wealthy and those who are able and privileged in this way escape and they leave town. Except, you know, when you're not wealthy and you don't have a lake house and you don't, you're not privileged in that way and you have nowhere to go, you're sort of stuck at home. There's an article that came out in the New York Times even this week about how um, how easier it was, how much more easy it was uh, for those who make a certain level of income to be able to distance themselves um, and get away from kind of this, even now, even in today's, like this is happening today, right? Uh, To take time off work or to take this or to not expose themselves uh, to the the virus out there. But anyways, at the height of the second pandemic, around 260 AD, in an Easter letter written to his church during a time of quarantine, which is ironic, this is next week's Easter for us, the church father, Dionysius, wrote a lengthy tribute to the heroic nursing efforts of local Christians, many of whom lost their lives while caring for others. And here's what he writes. Most of our brothers uh, and uh, Christians, mother, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ and with them departed this life serenely happy many in nursing and caring for others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Many who took care of others eventually contracted the disease, helped these people recover just just through basic nursing efforts, but then would die themselves. The heathen behaved in the very opposite way. Here's what we have. An example of them getting into their lake homes and beach homes and, and wherever else. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. Now, uh, so this is taking place. This is all happening in this way. And then what is interesting for me is, obviously this is written from a Christian perspective. It's a pastor at a church. And so perhaps bias, perhaps, you know, we, we chose to do this. The reality is they probably, <laughs> I would like to think that they chose to stay. The reality probably is that they really didn't have an option. They don't own the lake house. They, they were a bunch of nobodies. Again, they uh, found themselves uniquely in a spot where, and, and, and maybe we can twist the story. Maybe it's him twisting the story going, we chose to do this when really they had no other option to go to. But what happens as a result is Emperor Julian at, at the time, later on, in, in a, in a, this is again, this is uh, post commodus this is after him. This is in the, the later acad- uh, epidemics in the second half of the second one. Um, Emperor
Emperor Julian, in a letter to one of his pagan priests, writes this, I think that when the poor happen to be neglected and overlooked by the priests, our priests, our pagan priests, and our, our system, or our government way of caring for people is a better way to put it, the impious Galileans, this is his translation for Christians, <clears throat> observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. In other words, I think that they saw our absence in loving people and decided to do something about it, not out of the goodness of their heart, because they saw an opportunity for growth. This is like a play for him, right? This is, I see what they're doing here. They're, they're manipulating it or whatever. The impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. This second half of this quote right here has hung in my office for the last, I don't know, 10 years or so on a little post-it note on my bookshelf, and I see it all the time. And it reminds me of, and and this was one of the phrases that birthed this kind of where love sort of movement for me, um, or or at least for me in in, in my own personal case, of understanding uh, the role of Christians and and the opportunity that we have to be able to wear love uh, and to do it, especially and even when uh, other people aren't willing to do it themselves. This is, he's coming at it going, I see what they're doing here and it's working for them. People are responding to this. Um, He thinks it's a play. And once again, in the midst of a pandemic uncertainty, the early church saw opportunity. Another Roman historian who wrote uh, the history of the Peloponnesian War uh, wrote this. People were afraid, trying uh, trying to illustrate the actual severity of the situation, okay? People were afraid to visit one another. The catastrophe was so overwhelming that men, not knowing what would happen to them uh, next, became indifferent to every rule of religion uh, or law. No fear of God or law of man had a restraining influence. As for the gods, it seemed to be the same thing where one worshiped them or not when one saw the good and the bad. In other words, for them and their religious system, uh, they believed in the Greek God. They kind of inherited the Greek pantheon of gods and they kind of just went with that. Uh, And they weren't really all that religious. They wouldn't do temple church, but they would have a system where you paid tribute to the gods who existed somewhere who don't really care about you, um, but could uh, come against you if you don't do your your best to kind of pay tribute to them. And and, and they did this in a a way um, to, in this religious system, this would be something that was passed down from top-down authority to other people in the same way that you should pay your taxes to Rome. We don't really care about you. I mean, we'll create peace in a sense of Pax Romana everywhere, uh, but you owe it to us to kind of show and pay tribute and show honor and respect. That was essentially, we took the religious system and the way that you do that with that in that way, also do that with how we kind of view God. And so for them, the gods don't really care about you. Um, and, and it wasn't like out of respect for God, let's take care of our brethren. That had no, that wouldn't, uh, that sort of a concept would have no play in there. That would be so out of bounds for their religious system. Their religion and, and then their compassion towards their fellow man were completely two separate arenas. And those two things wouldn't combine until you get to Christianity. And in Christianity, what you see is a complete flip on this. You see Paul writing in his letter to the Corinthian church, again, the very first letter that he wrote, uh, talking about this continuity between believers, this community, this bond that goes beyond family, that when you're in the family of Christianity, um, that is something that, super, that, uh, that, that even goes beyond, like there's a connection there. There's an owing, there's a, a compassion element. There is a, um, I take care of you, you take care of me, we'll 
help each other out in this process, peace that comes with the community uh, of Christianity. And the reason that he can write about that and talk about that, and that is in essence a piece of it, is because they had heard, what, what does it mean to walk in the way of Jesus? What, it mean, what does it mean to do things the way that Jesus would do them? And they would recall this time where Jesus is teaching to his disciples and to some people, and he's you know, giving them parables and stories and teachings and being like, this is the way of Jesus. This is the way I would do it. This is the way I would do it. And he begins to talk about, imagine hearing this like phrase for the first time, coming from a religious system where the gods don't care about you and there's no kind of, um, I, I don't owe anything, anything to anybody right? And then hearing this, Matthew chapter 25, verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Jesus is saying this thing to these people, like you did this for me. And they rightly respond, like you and I would respond, God, or Jesus, excuse me, uh, we don't remember ever. I mean, like, sounds great. <laughs> I appreciate you thinking that I did that. Um, I hate to break it to you. I don't remember ever doing that. Um, what are you talking about? When did we do these types of things? And his response is truly, I tell you this, if you did this thing for the least of these, you've done it for me. If you've done it to one another, you've done it for me. And guys, for the very first time, religion and compassion for other people are brought together And the way that you pay tribute to God is not by offering some sacrifice in a temple. According to Jesus in the way of Jesus, the way that you pay tribute or respect to God is to love one another. This is a brand new thing. And the timing of it couldn't have come at a better time because all of the wealthy and the educated and the privileged are escaping, trying to dodge responsibility for caring for the fellow man. And you've got a group of Christians who now see it as an opportunity to live out exactly what they're supposed to do. And yes, many of them died as a result of it. And, 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 and many of them, you know, even as Dionysius would write about it, they would take on that death, even though they cared for them and cared for people out, and they cared for people outside of the walls of Christianity. They would just care about anybody who's sick gets our help in this way. Christians heard this and they attempted to live in the way of Jesus. And this is how Jesus, this is probably the way Jesus would have done it. So we are gonna do it ourselves in that way as well. Now, uh, I've quoted from this book several times, but Rodney Stark, one of my favorite books, um, writes about the rise of Christianity, a secular kind of take on why Christianity escaped the first century, why even today it's grown to be what it is, um, how did a low-level religion become, survive the fall of the Roman Empire and become uh, the biggest religion, basically, in the world. And in this, this is a chapter that I pulled this from, epidemics and whatever. Against this background, consider that a much superior Christian survival rate hardly could seem other than miraculous. And he's trying to say, I think one of the explanations for why Christianity survived is when they begin to take care of one another, when they begin to like view it as a moral and spiritual obligation, they actually, because of common care of just, I mean, they didn't have, there was no vaccines. They would just, if somebody was thirsty, they would give them water. If they were hurting, they would provide some sort of relief for them. Because of their survival rates, you begin to see a survival rate among Christians dwarf that of people who were just escaping and trying to push everybody away uh, from each other. How could that seem, be seen as anything other than miraculous? How, after this whole thing blows by and people are trying to assess the situation and make sense of the new reality, see all of these Christians who survived and think to themselves, 
holy cow, it worked. Like whatever God they are, are, you know, believe in and whatever they're doing, it must have worked for them. Moreover, superior survival rates would have produced a much larger proportion of Christians who were immune. Not only that, like this is, this is what he's saying. Uh, like when you go through this and when you've recovered from this, as we kind of are hearing about this, even this COVID-19 thing, those who have kind of uh, gone through it, there, there's a, a less of a susceptibility to it. The problem, the reason that we don't have um, uh, people like smallpox take over or measles take over, or typically our flu doesn't take over, is because we have a base immunity towards it because we've gone through something like that or gotten the flu shot or done something in this, in this way. These people who now had gone through part of this were immune and who could therefore pass among the afflicted with seeming invulnerability. All of a sudden, these Christians who were now had a baseline exposure to it, survived it, were taking care of others and not getting sick. How, if you had no idea of germ theory, could you see this and not think, I don't know what they have, but I want it, right? In fact, those Christians most active in nursing the sick were likely to have contracted the disease very early and to have survived it, as they say, in turn, were cared for. And I know this is all just a sociological way of trying to make sense of this. And I know Rodney's not doing this as a way of trying to convert Christianity or convert you into Christianity or provide for, for this. And I understand that a lot, in reality, they probably didn't have the option to escape. And maybe if they did, some of them would have. But in the circumstances as they were, uh, they were stuck here. They made the best of what they could do. They took the way of Jesus seriously. Uh, they looked and they believed Jesus when, when, or they believed the stories of Jesus when they said, well, if you did this for the least of them, you did this for me. They took this compassion, they took this compassion for the other and paired it with this respect or tribute to God and realized in those moments, the best way I can show him that I love him is how I love other people. And all of a sudden, this thing begins to play out in a completely different way for this. And 2,000 years later, we gather together. Well, we don't gather together today, but we gather together online and we watch and we celebrate a religion of truly nobodies who came together with a common way and a common teaching. And it reminds me of this, and I, I want to close with this. And if this is the only thing that you get, or, or if you want to write this down and, and hang this somewhere, I think this is a, a really good piece to kind of leave us with as we finish up today. In epidemics, as in all of life, our darkest hours can also be our finest hours. In epidemics, as in all of life, as in, uh, in the middle of, uh, of World War II, in, in, in the middle, and you hear stories, you hear books and, and things written about Christian communities coming through those times. And our darkest hours, those can also be our finest hours. And I know we're going through a really dark hour right now, you guys. But we as Christians have an opportunity, and as Americans as a whole, but hopefully I, I can't control America, right? I can control me, and I can be a part of influencing our community of people who are trying to figure out what it means to live in the way of Jesus in 2020. Perhaps we can look at this and proceed forward going, in the midst of this dark hour, it can also be one of our finest hours. And it's gonna be all about how we choose to have compassion and love those around us in, those, in these times. So I pray that that would kind of spark something in you, would spark something in me, uh, that we would go around with, uh, with kind of eyes open, opportunity, God, what are you calling me to do to live this out in this way? How do I provide a glass of water or, or clothes on, on the back or, or in, in very practical ways, but also sometimes in very intangible ways for others in this time? And uh, we can celebrate being a part of a religion of nobodies.
And we are back, everybody. With me today on the stage is my friend Megan. Hello. Megan has been the co-host of my, uh, our, I should say, not my, <laughs> uh, our podcast, uh, Say Something Interesting. Uh, she was part of all of season two, and then it's going to kind of help finish up season three here with me and Mallory, and uh, has been on the logistics team. How long have you been a part of Eastlake? Uh, about 10 years now. Crazy. Um, Almost yeah. from the beginning. Uh, no, nine years. Okay. Sorry. A year into it, yeah, yeah. and uh, has been uh, on our logistics team, as she mentioned in the video, forever. She is a big part of uh, the system making this thing happen. Uh, She's always been, uh, this is the person too, I mentioned a couple (laughs) times in teaching-wise, who meets with me in between services, um, between first and second to help make second service better. That's our our broadcast service, if you will, Um, that usually goes out on the internet, and so I'll take all of my notes from first service and all of the jokes that didn't work. And after I go shake hands and kiss babies for a little bit, we go in the office, <laughs> and she's always, like, waiting by the door, by the way, going, like, let's do this thing, right? Uh, and yeah. then helps me be like, hey, that's not how you pronounce uh, Thucydides or whatever, you know what I mean? Um, and uh, There was this... a series in particular where you, there was something you just said all the time, and I was like, that's not, stop yeah. saying that, please. It was, uh, it was the uh, self. Yes, self um, something self or uh, whatever, and man. I was like, oh. Yeah, self-deception. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but, I, but I would keep, I kept saying something really dumb. So anyways, um, <laughs> so she helps me kind of think through those things and, and from a third party perspective. I've always appreciated her insight. Um, she's brilliant and uh, grew up Presbyterian. Yep. And mm-hmm. uh, parents are still, uh, go to that church. Yeah, they go to Kennewick First Press. Are they watching today though? Uh, I don't because think so. Because they're watching you? No? Well, I, they didn't, I didn't know I was going to No, that's true. This. She didn't know until this morning. I was like, hey, you want to do this? <laughs> so, uh, well, that, that's, that's all right. That's good. Um, yeah, and <laughs> And uh, it, it's good. And she just came on uh, part-time this week. Yes. Helping out do some admin stuff for yeah. us, so, which is awesome. I so know. So we're super pumped to have her officially a part of the yeah. uh, like Slack and all of the emails. I and, know. I got added to all the things. Yeah, yeah. I was like, wow, this is a lot. So typically, I'll come into an office and be like, so what'd you like? What'd you not like? Well, typically, what we've started doing is it starts with me asking, all right, what worked? Like, yeah, what didn't yeah, work? that's true. No, that, that's absolutely <laughs> true. Um, and I'll say, well, this joke landed, and this one didn't yeah. work. And I think I was unclear on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she'd be like, yeah. Most of the time, <laughs> most of the time, we're pretty attuned uh-huh. in terms of, I don't think there's ever been a time where I've been like, I thought this was awesome. And you'd be like, meh. I mean, <laughs> occasionally, occasionally. Or I'll be like, I didn't think this was good. And, and you know, maybe out of the kindness of your heart, you'll say, no, I thought, I mm-hmm. thought you came through mm-hmm. clear. Usually, if I'm like, it was a bit muddy, she'll be like, yeah, it actually was. Yeah. So maybe try this or rewrite your whole message in this way. Uh, I usually don't try and get you to rewrite your whole message, but that's true. I know. <laughs> um, but uh, anyways, oh, you've been you watched last week. You, mm-hmm. You're a part of this series. Anything stand out to you? I know we're taking the questions. We'll get to those in a second. Mm-hmm. But uh, for you personally, any anything that kind of sparked interest or thoughts that before we dive into other, what other people um, have said? I just just the the idea of nobodies, and I think that that is really tangible for people and like. Like it makes Christianity more real, I think, and that's a part of it that is interesting. Does it appeal to, me. to us because we feel like we're nobodies? Like, as if you're yeah. a religious elite, like so. For a, a lot of times, like uh, uh, Kabbalism with mm-hmm. Jewish nature is like a, or even um, what's the one that uh, Scientology? Mm-hmm. Scientology mm-hmm. is like lo- the wealthy and they have the knowledge, and they and you know you can buy into this club and yeah. get to this. So it, it, there's an appeal of. If you uh, if you want to get into this, it, it's expensive to get into, but like there's a community that you get to buy into. It's like a members club, right? I, I pay to be a part of a club, and then I'm in, right? And that's just not at all what Christianity 
is. And I, and I mentioned last week for Augustine, that kind of messed him up because he's like, I kind of want it to be something mm-hmm. achievable. Is it, why do you think it also, I mean, why do you think it appeals to us as, I don't want to say you're a nobody, but I feel oh, like I'm 100% I am. a nobody. Right, yeah. So like, why do you, is, is it just because we identify with it? Like there's self-identification there? Or is it that's how we think religion should be or that's how the world should operate? And so it's like a diatribe against elitism maybe or something like that? I don't know. Um, I don't, it probably depends on the person. I think for me, it's probably a mixture of those things like that, like a diatribe against elitism and like, I don't want, like it shouldn't be elite. God should be accessible. And so um, that's what Christianity is about is that God is accessible and like he's here for you and to be part of your life. And I think that that is really appealing to people who are searching for something that can be a bigger part of their life. Um, so I don't, you know, and I don't know all of the things, but I think that's what, like that's a big part of why it has survived as long as it survived is because it isn't, it's about people helping other people striving towards having relationship with God. And that's really simple when you just say it like that and it's accessible and understandable. And it's not this big thing that you have to go to a million years of school to understand about. Yeah. Yeah. And I think again, the philosopher devil's advocate side of me would be like, why (laughs) should God be accessible to you? Right? Like Anselm's uh, ontological argument for God is, is all of the things that you are outside of your imagination, like, and out, and he's bigger than you could ever think he could be. And the fact that you can think, yes, God could be that is the fact that he exists according to that argument. Mm -hmm. But the idea of not accessible, hard, undiscoverable, and that's kind of been an appeal for a lot of people. But I think that flies in the face of everything you read in scripture, even in the Old Testament. I agree, right? Yeah. If you take Old Testament as truth or the Bible as truth, then like God is striving to be accessible to his people throughout history. Yeah. And so it's not like everything that he does is about like making connection and bringing us closer to him and bringing us into better understanding of him and who he is and what our relationship with him should be. And there's still though an element of the undiscoverability of God Mm -hmm. too, which is always then like the constant challenge for us that we never truly arrive. We're all always still chasing. So at some point it must just be that there's enough of enough discoverable unknowable to kind of have 80% of him figured out, but it's the 20% or I don't, and I'm making up these percentages, obviously (laughs) Um, the 20% that challenges us, that keeps us kind of excited and and moving and, and still growing. And the reason why we still have to get together on a Sunday to go, all right, culture has changed. Now, what does it look like now? I mean, that's the reason. Otherwise, church would just be, church wouldn't need to exist. You'd have, here's the class or the course you need to take to understand all the things that we need to know about God, and then you're set. But culture changes. Our, our understanding of God changes as the world changes. So therefore, it justifies a gathering together of people. Well, and just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy. Yeah, like, yeah. And so it doesn't, like, we are flawed, sure. we're human, we're not perfect, and so... Like we, our natural inclination is not to be godlike, and so you need to have community in order to stay accountable to those principles in that way. Like it's not just because the ideas of Christ are pretty simple doesn't mean they're easy to do. Totally, and I so. know what it takes to stay fit during quarantine. Oh yeah, it takes running outside alone by myself. It's just really hard to go do that, right? <laughs> So I know what it is. It's simple. And not, not eating easy. all of the quarantine snacks. Well, that's, so. that's part of it too. 
So we don't have any questions yet. So okay, that's that's we great. Can just keep we talking. answered all the questions apparently. <laughs> uh, anything else? I mean, I know I know there was a lot of quotes on there from like mm-hmm. Roman history stuff. I try and like dabble in it once in a while, like stick my foot in, then and then and then kind of pull it out, and then you know try and I, I don't want to be like I don't want to always feel like a classroom because um, I think that life is is more than that, but. Um, but I also understand like the value of kind of some of that historical piece for you. Is well, that... it's super relevant right now. Um, yeah. So that was that was a big thing I was hoping to get across today. Is the epidemics mm-hmm. like we feel like this is so unique, right? <laughs> and we're like, dude, it's just it's been unique that we've had as long of a run that we've had mm-hmm. without something like this because even. Like the significant, and we, we thought, well, maybe it's like the advent of science or, or whatever. Um, but even the Roman Empire is halted, right? And all of these wise and powerful men take cover and hide and wait for this tempest to pass, is mm-hmm. basically. I thought that was such brilliant. Like, who would have thought, if you would have said six months ago, something's coming where the world shuts down, you'd be like, you're crazy. Yeah, I think one thing I was thinking about is it's not. Um like in that time, Christians ran in, right? But I think right now we're being called to run out. Like we're being called to hold in place and not like, because that's what's going to, um, sorry, that's what's going to really. She's trading stocks right now is what's <laughs> happening. She's making a lot of money. Um, oh no, it's Sunday. The stock Sunday. market's not over. Um, but the, like that, we're not being asked to run into the fray and care for people. Like, you- because yeah. how we're going to really care for people is to hold ourselves apart. Right. And so, like... But not in an irresponsible way. Yeah. So it's like that, it's like that weird, I don't want to be irresponsible. I want to figure out what that means, responsibility looks like now. But then I also don't want it to just be confined to these, you know, from here until May 4th, and then on May 5th I get to do whatever, go back to my own selfish ways. Yeah. Like, what am I learning now that I can take with me as a result of this? And I think this is interesting, too. I, uh, I, I read a book a while back called The Black Swan, um, and it talks about, like, life's unique events that are <clears throat> seemingly unrepeatable, and they're just, like, they feel, like, crazy. Like, the stock market crash of 1929, right? Or uh, 9-11. Like, nobody saw it coming, and then it happens, and then the market does this. And the book was typically about markets and how you should prepare for what if this happens. And, well, the, the likelihood of it is almost nil, but it happens, like, Black swans don't exist until you see one. You're like, all I see are white swans. And so we fall into this bias of everything that I see. And I think from here on out, at least for, for a, I don't know how long, but for a, a long time, we are going to be a, people, a group of people who go, yeah, but what about, and taking in consideration, like, risk events differently now. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, what if the world does shut down? What if I can't do this? And, and Previously, you'd be like, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. And now, hopefully, we take it, and we don't live in fear, but we go, I could. I definitely could. Like, who knows? There might not be another event like this in my lifetime um, because I think my dad is 60-whatever, 63, 64. Men has never experienced anything like this. Well, I mean, right? the last major world pandemic was in 1918, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I would say even, like, World War II was oh, kind okay. of like, uh, like life changed, right? Yeah. Factories mm-hmm. stopped making cars and they started making uh, military vehicles or mm-hmm. whatever, right? So that was that was very, like, very, very different life changing. And since then, it's been kind of 
you know, everybody does for the most part their own thing. And then there's been small things here and there, but yeah. not like overly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we don't still don't have any questions yet, except for um, the lovely Kylie asked, wants to know what your favorite quarantine snack is. Uh, Maybe that was for me. I don't know. Is that my wife, Kylie? Yeah. <laughs> oh, she sh is she going shopping later? Is that what's happening? <laughs> she should know what my favorite quarantine snack is. What is your is. favorite quarantine snack? I don't, what have I been eating lately? Um, no, not corn nuts. She hates... <laughs> She hates corn nuts. Corn nuts stink. If I eat bad. corn nuts, there's an immediate six foot like barrier between her and me. Um, so that's that's definitely not it. I don't know. She made some brownies the other day that were pretty good. I've been making some sweet tea. It's pretty good. Um, yeah, I don't know. What about you? What do you? Um, what's your? What snack? is my favorite quarantine snack? It has been like crackers mostly. Tea. I've been drinking a lot of tea. I think that's been my big. Good thing. for you. So. Um, have and you always, I mean, typically a tea drinker? Or like? um, usually, so I try not to drink coffee in the afternoon or else I don't sleep at night. And then... Um, Cheers. <laughs> it's my third cup. <laughs> I'm wired right now. So I'll drink, I'll still drink like black tea in the afternoon, but it has a little bit less caffeine. So I was just making sure that you didn't fall into this idea. Like I had heard somebody saying, oh yeah, drinking hot tea cures... No. Cures <laughs> I drink it because <laughs> it <laughs> makes me feel comforted. So Yeah, good for you. Um, good. Oh, and I made homemade tortillas, so that was fun. That was my, like, homey quarantine thing that I did. Good. So Awesome. And still no, que no questions, just All a right. bunch of comments. So if anybody is watching this and is interested in reading more on this, uh, The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark is the book uh, that I mentioned, I quoted from, and that's accessible. Some of the older quotes from the, like, philosophers and, and, and other people uh, is uh, going to be a little bit more tough and probably not as readable for that. Um, another one that I just finished is Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond. Um, it was a Pulitzer Prize-winning book in 2006, I believe, is when that uh, second edition came out. Um, and the book itself is okay, but there is one chapter on epidemics that came into play uh, for this, especially I mentioned in uh, why the Spaniards came over and uh, fought the Incas, and the Incas outnumbered them 50 to 1, and how in the world could they win one, Spaniards had never seen a gun before, so they're like, what is this? The Incas had never seen a gun before. So what did I say? Yes, sorry. The Incas <laughs> had never seen a gun before, so they're thinking, what is this godly contraption mm -hmm. that's shooting these projectiles at us, right? So the fear of the unknown in that way. <clears throat> but then also, just the way that they took over their baseline diseases uh, that they were uh, you know, protected from, and it began to kind of completely wipe them out because they'd been previously undisclosed. I, that was... That was interesting to me. Interesting is a bad word because many people died as a result of that. But how did how did um, how did that how did all of that kind of evolve in in the way that it did? Why would these people um, win when they mm -hmm. were completely outnumbered? It wouldn't make any sense. So yeah, mm -hmm. good stuff. All right. Uh, I think we'll wrap it up, unless you got anything else. I don't think so, no. Okay. Uh, we are going to be doing our podcast uh, tomorrow. Okay. And uh, you, me, and Mallory. So if you're uh, interested in uh, even more follow-up conversation and a little bit more playful banter uh, in that way, uh, say something interesting. Go to eastlaketricities.com slash podcast. Uh, follow us along on there. Next week, Easter Sunday. Here's the plan for Easter, everybody, if you're watching this. I should have mentioned this at the end of the talk. Hopefully you're still watching this. Um, <laughs> one service online. Um, 10 o'clock as normal, uh, but we're going to be doing some different things in terms of our Q&A, adding a few more options to connect, and uh, 
be a part of, uh, of this thing. So more information this week in your weekly. Uh, check your weekly out. Uh, it'll come out on Wednesday with information on it. Uh, pass along to some friends that are looking for a place to connect on Easter as well. So mm-hmm. and what better way uh, to do it than this? And if you are a first or second time guest and you're still watching this, uh, make sure to mark that connect card that says first or second time guest. Uh, we have a thing where we donate money to a different organization uh, every single month. And uh, April is no different, and uh, so we'll be donating uh, money this month uh, to, I, 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 you know, I couldn't guess who it is. Uh, no, what? Yeah, well, anyways, uh, we'll, we'll get that information out. It'll be, it'll be awesome. So, and Megan will send you an email uh, saying, welcome to checking it out online. <laughs> all right, that'll do it. Thanks, guys. Have a great week, and uh, stay safe, stay healthy, wear a mask, do all the things, and uh, see you next week.